So I think most of us know that the theme I'll be exploring today and then for uh, the next two weeks as well, I'm calling uh, Buddhist Practice and the Transformation of Racism. And it's, of course, uh, in many ways, a response to what's occurring in uh, the country and really uh, throughout the world. Uh, and my, my reading of what's happening, uh, it's actually, there's an energy that's probably the strongest to actually transform the uh, structures of racism strongest energy that's been there in 50 years. So I think it's very, it's very promising, but it's still, of course, very young. And it's hard to know uh, the directions it will go. It's been primarily, as we know, focused on uh, anti-black uh, violence and racism. And of course, we could generalize about racism, and there's certainly uh, a history in certainly around Tucson and uh, certainly where I live of uh, a kind of racism against uh, Latinx people and certainly historically against Native Americans. So, and then, you know, it goes, of course, way wider in terms of other, other groups. So the core question I'm asking is how do we ground our understanding of racism and our response in our practice? What resources do we find in our practice, in the tradition, including recent tradition? And where do we need to find other resources or develop uh, as it were, new practices, still, I think, uh, based in the core development of wisdom, of mindfulness, of loving kindness, compassion, uh, skillful action, and so forth. But where might we have to also be innovative? And I, I realize that I'm saying this you know, at a time of really multiple crises. I mean, it's quite a, quite a time, isn't it? Uh, that we, of course, have the pandemic, which at the current time is accelerating. And I know in Arizona and in California, we have, uh, of course, the climate crisis, which uh, hasn't been too much in focus. We have uh, you know, economic crises, we have, uh, we could name others, you know, the crisis of uh, um, democracy, really, democracy threatened in many ways. So we could name all these different crises and we could focus on them with, you know, breaks to cheer ourselves up and so forth. But so it's, it's a challenging time. But tonight I want to focus on how we understand and respond to racism. And I wanted to just say a little bit about my own uh, standpoint, you know, where I come from uh, personally in looking into these issues. I think that going into this, this area, which is often charged and exploring it can often be uh, quite messy, 
I think it's important to have a, a certain, you know, especially as someone taking a role of guiding or teaching, it's important to have a certain amount of humility and acknowledge that I have a lot of uh, blind spots. I may uh, say things that are problematic or that when I reflect on them, I uh, don't agree with what I said. And, and so I'll say more about this in a moment, but I think generally in this exploration, as much as possible, we want to have a, kind of a whole attitude of humility, but also honest exploration. And as much as possible, create an atmosphere of, we might say, no blame and no shame, where we, we only are going to learn if we are honest and sometimes, quote unquote, make mistakes. And that, that goes for me as well. <clears throat> you know, we all have uh, unconscious material. We all have internalized uh, social conditioning. And otherwise, I wanted to say that I'm, uh, you know, my ethnic background is uh, Jewish and I'm also uh, and I would say an older uh, white man. And some of my own uh, background is such that um, when I was growing up, uh, I think things have changed some since then, but I was uh, often treated as an other. You know, and I actually, I think I internalized wanting to hide my identity as Jewish. And there were certainly there when I was growing up, there certainly was um, uh, anti-Semitism around. I don't think it was anywhere as thick as uh, the anti-black racism, but it was there some. My father, for example, uh, was unable to uh, go to medical school because when he was wanting to do that, they actually had quotas against Jewish people. A lot of those quotas uh, existed till the early 1960s. And probably many of you, many of you know that. Um, I also, this is, this is part of my background. I grew up in Maryland uh, outside of Washington, DC. And I was, uh, I lived not far from, a, from an almost entirely um, black neighborhood that was segregated and it was fairly poor, but I went, but I did go to school and became friends with a lot of the kids, right? So I have that, I have that in my background uh, growing up. And in fact, I, I went back and I, I found a, a video from three years ago, which was like a, a reunion of people who were in that community, which is now uh, quite a bit more well-to-do and, uh, uh, quite a bit more diverse. And there, they had a reunion about three years ago. And I actually, the kind of the elder spokesperson for the community was uh, my, uh, my best friend from the community, who's now a very elegant man in the 60s, right, named John Hopkins. And I was, pre was pretty amazed to see him. So anyway, so that is some of my uh, some of my background, but despite, I, sh I should say, despite some of those uh, more negative qualities of being Jewish, Jews were 
in some ways also seen many ways seen as white. So my father had benefits. He was in World War Two and had benefits from the GI Bill, which included going to college and getting housing. And many of you know that a lot of those benefits were very restricted for for blacks. Right. So there still were there still were benefits. So the, the framework that I'm going to use for our exploration for these uh, three weeks is a traditional one. I'm going to work with, and I think you know this from the write-up, if you looked at the write-up, the traditional model of training that we get from the Buddha, and that has really structured training in Buddhist communities, really wherever Buddhism has gone, it's a threefold training. It's a training in, um, this is the order, it's in the original language, it's called Sila Samadhi Panya. And I'm going to uh, approach it in the order of wisdom, meditation, and ethics. And many of you know that that threefold training also structures really the main teaching about how we get trained, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. That is the first two factors on the Noble Eightfold Path are associated with wisdom. We usually hear them spoken about as right understanding or right view on the, the one hand and then right intention on the other. And I should say that the word right um, could perhaps better be translated by the word developed or realized or mature. The, the actual word is sama, which is connected with English words like summary, and it means sort of towards completion. And so the translation of right is, I think, what? Victorian. <laughs> comes out of the Victorian translators who are responsible for a lot of things we have to correct these days. <laughs> anyway, that's a little minor polemic. Um, but in any case, uh, so we have wisdom, the first two factors of the uh, Noble Eightfold Path. Then the next three are connected with ethics, right livelihood, uh, right speech or wise speech, and uh, right action, which is really about the ethical guidelines. And then the last three are about meditation, usually called right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so I'm organizing my comments around these three, uh, these three kinds of training. And we'll, I'm going to point to how these three kinds of training are understood traditionally and how they might be understood in a contemporary way that really helps us very much to both understand and respond to, to racism. You know, the, a short version of it will be, and today we'll focus especially on the wisdom factors, next week on meditation and the third week on, on the area of ethics. But it's really one way we can talk about it is that looking at racism guided by wisdom gives us a way to understand 
and approach the whole phenomenon of racism. With meditation, we can particularly notice our minds, our hearts, our bodies, very, very crucial to working with our conditioning. And then thirdly, the area of ethics really is the foundation for action, for bringing out our uh, practice uh, into the various spheres of our lives. Uh, you know, our interpersonal relationships, our time in communities, as well as our being in the larger society. Now, interestingly, I won't say so much about this, I could say a lot. Interestingly, the way that uh, this model has been transmitted to uh, what we might call uh, convert Buddhist communities, you know, as juxtaposed with Thai or Japanese or Sri Lankan communities, of these three, wisdom, meditation, and ethics, there's been a very, very strong emphasis on meditation. And this happens for understandable reasons, but one of the issues has been that in most of our communities, we don't emphasize as much ethics. You know, we talk about it some, and there can be, you know, exceptions. I think the last time I was in Tucson, I actually talked about ethical practice. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, but we may we may look into wisdom some, but the real focus is on meditation. So it's no coincidence that we have meditation centers, where we have meditation communities and so forth. And and so when we want to look at all three of these areas, we're expanding what I think what is uh, and we're expanding from how we often. Uh, I think actually restricts somewhat these three areas of training. So again, today I'll focus especially on the wisdom factor and I'll, I'll be giving some uh, questions right at the end and we'll, 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 I think we'll have these on the website. I'll have some questions at the end that can help us continue our explorations uh, complementing what I offer, what I'm offering this evening with some reflection questions for us for the next week in preparation for the session next week that'll be more focused on the meditative dimensions. So the, the wisdom dimension in Buddhist practice, as many of us know, is particularly focused on a few teachings. You know, perhaps the most central is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. You know, very much related to the teaching of dependent origination. I'm not going to go into detail on these, but just to name them. And wisdom is also very much about uh, developing the insights into three areas. Impermanence, the nature of dukkha, I like to translate that as reactivity, and I'll say more about that. And then not self, anatta. So these are anicca, dukkha, anatta. That's another area which is really cultivated when we're developing wisdom. And in later Buddhist traditions, in Mahayana and Vajrayana, the wisdom 
the cultivation of wisdom would involve looking into the nature of emptiness or what the Tibetans call the nature of mind. And I'm going to primarily be uh, focusing on some aspects of the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination in a, in a fairly brief and simple way. So I'll come back to those teachings, but before going into the teachings, I wanted to give somewhat of a, a historical setting, which I think is very, very important. Uh, for in partly motivating our own practice to transform racism, but also to understand how in many ways the historical Buddha was doing something similar. And very interesting history when you go back to India from 2,600 years ago, the, the time when the Buddha was alive. You know, at that time, there was the presence of what we generally call the caste system, you know, which was uh, a hierarchical ranking of different groups of people. Interestingly, that caste system, and I'll, I'll talk about it in more detail in a moment. Interestingly, that caste system was the result of an invasion by lighter skinned people who came from the area that we would now call Iran and Turkey and were called Aryans coming into Northwest India around the, the year 1500 before the common era. They brought what we could, would call Indo-European languages. So some of the words like I, I quoted the word Sama being like summary, some of the words are similar but they were invaders. They were lighter skinned and they subjugated the darker skinned native people. Are there echoes of our own reality? Interesting. This was the setting that the Buddha was born into and the Buddha was born into one of the higher caste and thus was a person we might say of, of great privilege. In fact, his father and mother were king and queen and he grew up in a palace. So he grew up in a hierarchical system. There were four classes. There were the Brahmins or priests who were taken to be the purists. They studied the sacred text. There were the warriors, the Satriyas, this was the caste the Buddha was born into, who protected the people and also had the right to study. There were the merchants and traders and the farmers in the third group called the Vatsyas. And then the fourth group were the Sudras, who were considered the lower class, were darker skinned, and they served the upper three classes. Sometimes they were even treated as slaves. And then there were also were the outcasts who were considered highly impure. There was very little social contact between the different castes. And 
Generally, there was no movement from birth to death in terms of castes. You were, you, one lived in the uh, caste that one was born into. This was what the Buddha was born into, and he was critical of the caste system, and in his own community, he rejected the caste system. I think this is an interesting context for us looking into this. So we can use the, have the, the uh, first slide now. So we can see that from the first statement that this is, these are all from the suttas. The Brahmins are the foremost class, other classes are inferior. Brahmins are the fair class, other classes are dark. Brahmins are purified, unlike non-Brahmins. Brahmins are the legitimate children of Brahma, created by Brahma, and are the heirs of Brahma. That was the nature of the system. And so the Buddha questioned the caste system in a number of ways. One of them was that he said that when you actually look to people, there actually are no real differences. All differences in terms of calling people a member of this or that group are only conventions. They have no basis in reality. We'll come back to that because we'll see, be able to see race in a similar way. So this, so that we can see the second quotation, the Buddha said, among individual human beings, bodies in themselves, no distinct features are found. Speaking of distinctions among human beings is merely a matter of convention. It's a very strong statement. And then the next one is even stronger. He said that the Brahmins had no right to be considered superior simply by being born as Brahmins. And in fact, he reframed, the Buddha reframed the whole discussion and said that a true Brahmin is a Brahmin because of acting skillfully and ethically, not because of birth. So the Buddha said, one does not become a Brahmin by one's birth. One does not become a non-Brahmin by one's birth. One becomes a Brahmin by one's deeds. One becomes a non-Brahmin by one's deeds. So this was this must have been a very very strong statement at in the society of his times. So we can we can take the slide down now. And I I was reflecting that uh, when the Buddha was saying such things, there must have been Brahmin leaders who would be doing the equivalent of early morning tweets, just really upset about what this guy, the Buddha was saying and offering early morning tweets attacking the Buddha. We don't have actual records of that, but there must have been a lot of them. So very interesting, isn't it? And further, um, when the Buddha started his community, he said, there's no place for the caste system in my community. People from every caste are welcome in the community. This must have been very radical. And he later did something very similar 
bringing women into the community, which must have been really outside the norm of that time. So he took in everyone and for many, many centuries, Buddhist tradition stayed that way, that there were very much uh, people from any of the caste and including the, the coming from the outcast who found a place in Buddhist communities. And, you know, I know from, for example, reading some of the texts from the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions, there's a, there's a group of great meditators called the 84 Siddhas who develop in India in the seventh, eighth and ninth century of the common era. And you find among these 84, many who were described as dark skinned and coming from the lower caste or the outcasts. So that tradition stayed, I think, and is very, is very significant. And when members of the community were to meet people from outside the community, they were instructed to make no distinction between people according to caste. So that being said, the Buddha did not attempt sort of widespread social reform, but I think very significant that within his community, there was a going against these core norms. And there was just accepting everyone and abolishing the construction of caste within the community. So that's kind of a context for our looking at the, uh, for our looking at uh, Buddhist resources really for transforming racism. I think that example is a powerful one that can, that can be there. Again, remembering that the Buddha was a creature of privilege. He went against his own privileges in doing that. Many of you know the story of the Buddha leaving the palace, you know, and so there, there are interesting analogies uh, from that time. So when we actually now look to wisdom teachings, I want to focus on two core wisdom teachings. Um, the first one is related to the nature of dukkha, the intention in our practice to end dukkha. Again, I like to translate that as reactivity. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So I want to look at that teaching, first of all, and see how that can be applied. And then secondly, and I should say that that will take the form of looking at the roots of greed, hatred and delusion and seeing how we can see those both in ourselves and in the larger society. But our core practice is to transform greed, hatred and delusion. And I would say our core practice is to transform it at every level in ourselves, in the world. Okay, so that's, that's the first teaching I'll work with. And then the second teaching is the teaching that really, uh, really that is related to the teaching of emptiness. I'll come back to that, but it's really seeing how race is a construction that appears at a particular time in history. And it's actually very closely connected to greed, uh, hatred and delusion. It appears at a certain point in history has no 
basis in biology. It's constructed at a certain point in history, not that long ago, and can be deconstructed. That's, so I'll come back to those two points. So the first teaching is, you know, quite probably quite familiar to us. Uh, the Buddha teaches the end of dukkha. You know, one place in the text he says, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. So again, I like to interpret dukkha as reactivity, and I'll, I'll make this clear just in a moment, rather than, a, rather than a suffering, how it's often translated. Part of the problem with dukkha is that when you look to the old text, the Buddha had about at least four different accounts of what dukkha is, and they were, they're different. Sometimes he talks about dukkha as simply the presence of the unpleasant. He says, okay, there's sickness, old age, and death. That's dukkha. Uh, but it doesn't really make so much sense what the end of dukkha would mean because we don't get rid of sickness, old age, or death, right? And so I think when we look, uh, when we look to a one particular teaching, part of the teaching of dependent origination, which I'll go over briefly, I think we can start to see this sense of uh, dukkha as reactivity more clearly. And we can apply this then to looking at how uh, it gets expressed as greed, hatred, uh, supported by delusion. So bear with me for here. So we'll use the second slide now. So this is part of the model of dependent origination. And this is the part which is right at the center of our practice. Very simply, it goes like this. In every moment of experience, we have some kind of contact with the senses. And this could include thinking. So this would be the five senses that we usually talk about, plus uh, thinking. So I'm sitting here and I uh, have my hand on my knee. I feel the sensations. On the basis of contact, there is a feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this is said to be in every moment of experience. Most of our experiences are neutral. Some would say as much as 99% are neutral. And of course, we're very interested in the pleasant and the unpleasant, maybe 1% of our experiences. And so we uh, have these experiences of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So far, this is occurring for everyone. When we have a basis in ignorance and we're not mindful, very commonly, a pleasant experience will lead us to want something. Maybe I'm eating, I have a pleasant sensation of, uh, with the food, taste, smell, and I want more. And if I'm not mindful, I will then grasp for what I want. And we can see this in all sorts of ways. Similarly, if I have an unpleasant experience and I'm not mindful, I will tend to push it away, 
first I'll tend to not want it, then I'll tend to push it away. So this can be on the level of individual experience or interpersonal experience. Someone says something a little bit nasty to me and I um, instantly say something nasty right back. That would be an example of the unpleasant experience going immediately to pushing away. <clears throat> and so we probably know this model from our practice. Uh, the two forms of grasping or pushing away are what I would call reactivity. And the aim of our practice is to be aware of this dynamic so that we can bring mindfulness and wisdom to the process and as much as possible minimize or lessen our grasping, our reactive compulsive grasping or pushing away. Now, just a qualification, this is really pointing to the more unconscious automatic uh, sort of uh, reactive tendencies uh, that are just happening because of our ignorance and conditioning. Of course, sometimes we want deliberately to uh, go for seconds or say something to someone, but here we want to try to avoid it being uh, reactive, compulsive, uh, relatively unconscious, automatic. And so this is right at the core of our practice. Okay, so, uh, and I should say that this, this tendency to grasp or push away compulsively is supported by our delusion into thinking that grasping and pushing away is the way to find happiness. Right. So that's our this is our core model. This is another version of what's at the heart of the Four Noble Truths. So. Is that is that familiar so far? We can we can let the slide down now. And so. We can start to see that racism is really a form of reactivity. It's a kind of pushing against, and especially when I give the history, we'll be able to see how it's also linked with greed and with delusion. But at least on the surface, racism seems to be the example of some kind of compulsive pushing away, and that happens in a thousand different ways. Of, of certain people who are taken to be an outgroup, you know, uh, and here, you know, we're particularly focusing on anti anti black racism. And I'll also say that it's important to remember that the Buddha talked about ending dukkha. He didn't talk about ending my dukkha. He talked about ending dukkha in general. So at this point, I want to say that greed, hatred and delusion are not just individual, but they're also institutional. That makes sense, right? We can understand that. that and I, I'm going to say that uh, racism is a manifestation of institutionalized greed, hatred and delusion. And again, when we think about it, it's particularly 
particularly the, the institutionalized hatred. And again, this is another way of talking about what is very common in our in discourse these days, talking about structural racism or systemic racism and so forth. It's really saying something very similar. And I would say that uh, racism is the core social dukkha of our society and maybe of our world. And many people use similar language. They talk about racism as the core wound. I remember reading uh, Jacob Needleman talks about uh, uh, slavery and racism on the one hand and the uh, genocidal relationship to Native Americans as the two founding uh, crimes of the country, right? And how do we how do we end these large forms of dukkha? I think that's partly what is arising as a possibility at our time. You know, how do we collectively get at this large scale social dukkha? You know, different societies have done it historically in different ways. You know, South Africa had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A number of societies that have something similar. A lot of people say we should have that now, you know, as part of part of what needs to be done. And but it seems very clear that we can't really be healthy as a society without addressing uh, different forms of racism. And again, most obvious in terms of anti-black racism, and that'll be the the primary focus that I'll give. But it also is um, you know very much there in terms of relationship to uh, native people. And I, I want to thank uh, uh, friend and colleague uh, Jeff Hazis, who's here right now. Can you raise your hand, Jeff? So Jeff has spoken to uh, the Insight Meditation Tucson community. And Jeff gave me several quotations which show uh, how in the 19th century and probably before that, there were very extreme views towards, particularly towards the uh, Chiricahua Apache. So let's have the third slide now. So I'll just read these briefly, but these are pretty intense. You know, one person from Fort Bowie named Sidney DeLong believed in the extermination policy as what as the panacea for the Apache problem. He described the Chiricahuas as savages with all their vices, intractable, treacherous, not truthful, dishonest, not hospitable, cowards. A second quotation, Richard McCormick, who was the secretary of the entire Arizona Territory, so this is close to home, believed that popular opinion was in favor of an utter extermination of the ruthless savages. And then thirdly, this was from the editor of a Tucson newspaper around the same time. We heard a man say today, and he was of the opinion that he was endorsed by 999 out of 1,000 people. Interesting gloss, what does he mean by people? Not said that the kind of war needed against the Chiricahuas was, was steady, unrelenting, hopeless and undiscriminating war, slaying men, women and children, 
and no relenting until every valley and crest and crag and fastness shall send to the high heavens the grateful incense of festering and rotting Chiricahua Indians down to the last one of the guilty and their aiders and abettors. That's intense, right? So that is part of the local history yeah, of Tucson. So we can let the slide off now. The, the Jewish teacher, who uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who marched with Dr. King, spoke about racism as a cancer of the soul. Ruth King, who's a colleague of Anna and mine at Spirit Rock, some of you may know her book, uh, Mindful of Race. She says racism is a heart disease, and she adds, and it can be cured. Mm. So just a few facts about racism, just to make clear some of these institutional bases of uh, how a kind of hatred gets institutionalized. Um, of course, we, we know some of the extreme violence of slavery. And it's, of course, left a legacy. The promises, most of them given to the ex-slaves after the Civil War were, were largely not kept, a mule and 40 acres and so forth. And all sorts of laws, as most of us know, uh, restricted what could happen. So there's a legacy from slavery that is still there. And some, some black writers talk about, uh, about trauma. Some of you may know the book, My Grandmother's Hands, which is about uh, trauma. And uh, I think uh, Joy DeGruy wrote a book called The uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. You know, so they're, they're residues. And a lot of these are there in a number of facts. Uh, many of you know that uh, black people die younger, 3.5 years uh, younger. They're generally hungrier and sicker. They have a lower birth, birth rate, a much higher rate of infant mortality, much greater chance of breathing toxic fumes, worse health care, 25% more likely to die of cancer, incarcerated five times as much as uh, white Americans. 71% uh, of white Americans live in owner-occupied homes, 41% of black Americans. Many of you also know the median wealth is uh, one-tenth of what it is for uh, whites. The median wealth of a black family is $17,000. Of a white family is about $170,000. So many of you know those details. Of course, more recently, uh, black people are twice as likely to die of the virus. You know, we could add all sorts of things. We could add voter suppression and so forth. And this is this is institutionalized dukkha, institutionalized reactivity, right? This is what it looks like. And it can lead one. Uh, this is next quote, please, or next slide. This is from James Baldwin. 
to be a Negro, this is from 1961, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all of almost all the time in one's work. And part of the rage is this, it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all the time in the face of the most extraordinary criminal indifference, indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. It's from 1961. We can let the slide go now. So my colleague, David Loy, who's a Zen teacher based in Colorado, I think was one of the first people to talk about institutionalized greed, hatred, and delusion. And I have uh, a reading list, which I just put today, a resource list on my website, which has some of his works. I think the most accessible one is called Money, Sex, War, and Karma. And he has a very clear sense, how does greed get institutionalized? And he points particularly to aspects of the economic system. How does hatred get institutionalized? He points to racism, also points to aspects of militarism. How does delusion get institutionalized? He points to aspects of the media, the educational system, and, and so forth. And so I think for me, this is a very helpful way to look at our society. Part of what wisdom does for us, it gives us a way to look not just at our own individual psyche, but also out into the world. And we can say, oh, there's institutionalized dukkha. There's institutionalized greed. There's institutionalized hatred. And we can see that as continuous with what we find in our own minds. And of course, they're, they're closely related. You know, a lot of our, because we take in the social conditioning, of course, so we have the conditioning that comes from the institutions. So again, I'm finding this a helpful, a helpful model. And part of the delusion is a kind of denial. So I found some interesting quotations. This is from the current Attorney General, William Barr. I don't think that the law enforcement system is systemically racist. Our current Attorney General the acting secretary of Homeland Security said, systemic racism is not an issue for law enforcement. So interesting. So we internalize this, we, you know, and when we talk about institutionalization, we can also talk about all the other levels that occurs on it. It occurs at the level of culture, it occurs at the level of communities, of interpersonal relationships and so forth. So I think I'm going to uh, skip the next slide, uh, not go to that, but I'll just finish this section by giving a quote from uh, Angel Kyoto Williams, who wrote a book called Radical Dharma. She said, love and justice are not two. Without interchange, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. So the way of looking at racism as a manifestation of greed, hatred, and delusion is also it's, um, letting us see the continuity between our own individual greed, hatred, and delusion and what we find in the world and seeing our practice as really about 
transforming dukkha, greed, and hatred wherever it appears. You know, and we can find passages like that in the Buddha, not so well known, where he often is very clear. I think it's very parallel to what his attitude towards the caste system, where he says something the equivalent of do not kill, do not approve of others killing. That's from the suttas. Some of you may know Thich Nhat Hanh says something very similar. Do not kill, do not let others kill. That, that's getting a little ahead of myself because that's an interpretation of the ethical precepts. But what it's pointing to really is a way of holding our practice and our wisdom in this case, holding our practice as involving both inner and outer transformation. That's what I'm suggesting. And then the second aspect of wisdom, and I'll try to be brief on this so we can have a good chunk of time for discussion. The second aspect of wisdom that I want to point to is the way that racism is a historical construction. And some of this is very interesting, and I didn't know this so well until I looked a little more closely at history. And I'll just say that this could be taken to be uh, a development of the teaching of emptiness, which we have in Theravada, but it's more developed in the Mahayana tradition. And I like a very simple account of emptiness. It means merely a construction with no ultimate reality. That's what empty means. So, and so what we're going to see is that racism is a construction that develops at a particular period of time, motivated in large part by greed. And then it takes on, it's uh, developed and it takes on life of its own. So when we see something as a construction, we can know that even though it's a construction and has terrible consequences and is very real, um, it's still only a construction. Let me see if I can find, I remember one person gave a qualification very well. Let's see if I, I don't see it in my notes, but I think I can uh, say it. It was something like, um, Racism is a fiction that we should never believe. It is a fact that we should always remember. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's actually a fiction and a construction, but fictions and constructions can have terrible consequences. So let me take you back to Virginia in the 1600s. It's the middle of the 17th century in Virginia. There are slaves that have been brought from Africa starting in 1619. There are actually not that many of them. Most of the people who work the fields are indentured servants, mostly from England. They have indentured servitude typically of up to seven years. At that time, slavery is rather fluid people can get out of being slaves. Being slaves, people can get out of being indentured servants. The indentured servants and the slaves work together. There's a certain amount of commonality. Intermarriage occurs. Slaves have homes. They have families. They're no longer slaves. Same with indentured servants. There's a small ruling class 
that uh, you know has the slaves and the indentured servants working in the fields. The slaves in uh, Virginia at this time largely come from the Caribbean. They speak English. They can connect well with uh, those of English background. <clears throat> there is a fair amount of cooperation and mixing. In 1676, there's a rebellion led by a man named Nathaniel Bacon, who's a person we now would call white. I should say that at this time, there's no language of whites and blacks. People are known by their religion or where they come from. There's a rebellion against the rulers in 1676. It comes to be called Bacon's Rebellion. And let's go to the last slide now. I'm going to show you an image from this rebellion. This is the group of rebels. They go to Jamestown, they burn it down. If you look carefully, I don't know if you can see so well, but if you look carefully, you can see people of African descent among the rebels. And then presumably the person in the middle is Bacon. And so in other words, there's cooperation and solidarity between people we would call black and people we would call white. Now, they were not called that at that time. So we can let down the slide now. <clears throat> the rebellion is in 1676. The rulers are to use a modern Buddhist technical term, freaked out. The rulers are freaked out they tell the local communities that the rebellion was the act of dangerous slaves. They cultivate fear of the slaves. This is not actually true in terms of what happened. The rebellion was had people of different backgrounds, but the rulers frame it as an armed rebellion of African slaves and against English Christians, not as a uh, workers' revolt. That one of the historians of that time, Edmund Morgan, says, for those with eyes to see, there was an obvious lesson in the rebellion. Resentment of an alien race might be more powerful than resentment of an upper class. Do you hear that? Resentment of an alien race might be more powerful than resentment of an upper class. And so what happens right after that, we start to have the first usage of the word white. White appears after Bacon's Rebellion. The first use of the word white in law is 1691. And Shortly after that, we have the slave codes. We have slavery becomes hereditary, becomes much more rigid. And we have the fear of slaves becomes paramount. Poor whites are set up to do slave patrols. That's the antecedent of the uh, police. So do you get the picture? Basically, Race is constructed 
as part of a divide and conquer strategy that works. And it's been going on for 300 years. You can see the divide and conquer strategy right up close in today's newspapers, right? Anyone see that connection? You can go back and look, uh, starting with uh, the President Nixon, you can go right up through the presidents and see what's now called dog whistling, where they use code to make people think that we have to watch out for these dangerous uh, black people or now other races. So we have Nixon talking about law and order, Reagan giving the war on drugs, Clinton ending welfare as we know it. And of course, uh, the current president doing all sorts of things in this way. <clears throat> One book which has really influenced me is by Ian Haney Lopez. It's called Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class. His basic suggestion is that the deep healing of racism can only occur when uh, essentially we people have an interracial movement that joins together economic justice and racial justice, which would be exactly the deconstruction of that 300 year old construction. Does that make some sense? So looking at the divide and conquer dynamics. And so that's, that's pretty much what I wanted to say. What I want to invite us to do for next time is to look individually and do some homework. And so I have, I prepared a, a, a set of reflection questions and some suggested readings. And I have a resource list on my website. I suggested reading uh, one, one of two very short readings. One of them is by Tara Brock called Facing My White Privilege. Another one is called On American Racism. These are both on the web. And then I had some reflection questions, which I wanted to invite people to, uh, to do in the next week, either on your own or with a, with a friend. So there are questions essentially asking you about what's your sense of racial identity? What were some important experiences that you had growing up? Again, in the spirit of just inquiry, not blaming or shaming and looking for where there are difficult emotions. So let me end there. So again, I have focused on the wisdom dimension, and this can really give us some guidance for understanding racism. In the next two sessions, I'll focus on how we use meditative tools to work with our inner conditioning. And then thirdly, using ethical foundations as a basis for acting within our communities and within the larger world. So thank you for bearing with me for this first part of our journey. So thank you. There was a lot, so I wanted to leave some time. Any, could be any questions or sharings, questions of clarification. Uh, and I think we'll have to do, in terms of questions, we'll have to do under participants, there's a uh, there's a command called raise hands because I can't I can't see everyone. There there are a couple of questions in the chat. Great, yeah. Why don't we ask those?
what is the website? Uh, uh, Dollar Rothberg um, oh. website. Also, um, I was thinking about posting uh, these questions and exploration on the um, the calendar page that you signed up. Also, I may create a page under online offerings that will list all these books as well as what you're inviting us to do between this session and the next. That's great. Yeah, so there are two documents. One is a resource list. The other is a set of uh, suggested short readings, maybe just one 10-page reading and questions for next time. Any questions, sharing, reflection about anything that was said or not said? And I should say, I'm going to put the talk up on uh, on Dharma Seed. And I'll, I'll get a code. And we're going to do it just for people in the Sangha, so not for everyone. So we'll have, have to have a code, which we'll get to you. Well, since, since uh, no one else is talking, <laughs> I'll share a quote of uh, Rezma Menachem, Rezma's book, My Grandmother's Hands, you, you uh, mentioned. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, who, who is speaking? Oh, this is Steve Ross. Okay, let me see if I, okay, I'm going to go to speaker view. Okay, yeah. thanks, Steve. And, um, so this was an interview uh, on a radio program from Al Jazeera, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, four people being interviewed. And let me make this bigger so I can see it. Uh, Resma's book is uh, very direct and kind of hard hitting. And in this interview, he was, he was uh, very much in that way. And he, I'll just read this to you. He said, the black body is where America does its dirt. If people are not excavating that and working with it and dealing with the ugliness of it, they will not stay with this movement. We won't see them next year. They'll cut off their blonde dreadlocks and move out to a suburb and we'll never know that they were in the movement. White folks have to come together, gotta study, gotta read, gotta write, gotta get mad at each other, got to feel each other, got to go away, got to come back in order to develop a somatic abolitionist anti-white supremacist culture. Commit to doing it in an embodied way for three years. Black people would know you as an ally by your practices. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. That's, that's... A little fire under me. Yeah, that's one of the books on the resource list, uh, My Grandmother's Hands. Other reflections, questions? I really encourage so-called uh, half-baked questions. I have a half-baked question. Okay. Um, my name's Lee. Uh, I, um, when the when George Floyd was killed, um, I was on a retreat. <laughs> um, and 
I struggled basically the entire retreat between because it's you know it's virtual. We're at home. I'm not like out in the woods where no one where I can't be bothered. Um, I really really struggled with balancing the like drive to um, reflect inwardly and and work on myself and the like imperative to work outwardly. And for me, there's there's a ton of conflict between sitting quietly and standing up and speaking out. And I know it's a middle a middle path. That's the whole thing. But um, this was kind of hoping if you had some thoughts on 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 that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, thank you, Lee. It's an important question, and I I you know, have divided the themes of the talk. So maybe I should bring in a little more about action next time. I was going to be focusing more on meditation, uh, but. Um, one thing is, is that this is uh, this is long-term work, right? This isn't like okay, I'll do this for six months, right? You know, I'm I'm inspired by uh, people like uh, Dr. Aryabhatni from Sri Lanka, who addressed the civil war there, said we have to have a 500-year uh, plan because the the problems were 500 years in the making. So I think what we want is um, we want to have perspectives, resources, and energy that can let us be there for the long haul, almost certainly for all of our lifetimes, right? And so we we need to have uh, inner work that can help us to be balanced, be restored, work with difficult emotions, some of what we would explore next time, work with difficult emotions. That's partly why I brought in the compassion and the loving kindness, because how many of us just hearing some of what I said felt a certain level of pain or even confusion? It's so big, right? How many people felt something like that, right? So that's that's part of it. So we need, uh, we need to have a lot of these important inner qualities. I, I had that quote from uh, quote from Angel Kyoto Williams, who's more or less said, you know, the movement has to have deep inner practice and deep outer practice, <laughs> have to have both. And so, um, you know, some people maybe start more with the activism, start, some start with the meditation more. And so we need to have uh, all the qualities we're developing, mindfulness, equanimity, patience, uh, even concentration to actually stay with all this, to be able to see our own conditioning. We need the wisdom qualities to be able to understand, oh, I want to cut through dukkha. The heart of our practice is ending dukkha. How do I end dukkha in myself and help do it in others, right? And so I think what I'm going to suggest uh, I was going to do it in the last session was suggest that we really look for what calls us and maybe we want to, uh, you know, maybe we want to devote five hours a week to this. And what would that five hours be like, you know, or we want to devote some resources, financial time, energy. But I think what I'm encouraging is that, uh, for many of us, there may be a call that being part of this movement, which again, I think is happening in a way which hasn't happened in 50 years, 
you can almost ask yourself, where would I want to have been in the civil rights movement? Maybe some of us were there. You know, where would I have wanted to have been? Do I want to, again, and it's uh, really seeing where one's called. You know, maybe you're focusing on climate issues and you just want to make the connections with race, you know, with so-called climate justice, as many people are doing. But it's really <clears throat> inviting people to attend to this, give us a Buddhist lens for seeing the issues, and then also see the interrelationship of uh, the inner practice and being part of a being part of a movement. You know, there are all sorts of other things that are helpful. You know, I some of my own personal history is I've been part of three uh, long-standing training programs that in which people combine inner work and social service or social change. I've been I did that for about 20 years with um, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, with uh, uh, Spirit Rock, we had a program, two-year program, and then also uh, an academic program, which was Interfaith, which I did for nine years. So I've been interested in these training programs, which bring bring the inner and the outer together. I think that, you know, whether one does that with, uh, with racism as a primary issue, or some of the other ones I mentioned, you know, climate or you know, maybe gender issues or whatever that I think that inner outer connection is really crucial. So I hope that starts to get there. Thanks. Anna, do we have time for one more and then we'll finish up? Or should we finish right now? Okay, we'll do one more and then we'll then we'll finish up. you see a hand? Well, I don't see everyone, but uh, I think, uh, Terry, are you helping to see if they're raised hands? You can do the raised hands function under participants. I'm looking, I don't see one yet. Okay. Anyone have, could be, a, could be a reflection, a question. Again, half-baked questions, very important. Okay. Donald, would you dedicate the merit? Yeah, let me, I'll dedicate the merit. Let me just uh, close by how many people are interested in doing some further reflection on this? And you can raise your hand and then doing a little bit of reading. How many people would like to continue with this for next time? Great. And let me invite you, right? We'll close with two things. First is, just see what's there for you right now that may have had an impact, been helpful, connected with any intention you have coming out of our evening.
And then we'll go to the dedication of merit. I want to also, before before finishing, thank you in advance for for Donna for support. May the benefits of our time together be supportive for us, be supportive for those in our own circles, and then beyond our own circles, may the benefits of our evening, our practice together, our inquiry together be offered beyond our own circles, out into the world, for the benefit of all beings, remembering always that all beings includes us. So thank you. I'm, I can see 25 people at a time. It's, it's good. I wish I could see everyone and be with you in person, but thanks for being willing to go into this uh, challenging territory. And again, we want to keep approaching it with openness, with empathy, with compassion. If anything feels heavy, bring in some of the heart practices that again, uh, what Anna's doing this weekend will be very supportive in that way. So thanks Anna for inviting me and, oh, yes. and uh, to be continued. Yes, to be continued. Yeah. I'm so glad you we will hear again next week. We have time to let all of this kind of cook inside of us and it could be a very rich week we have. Great. With your input. And now let's unmute everybody so we can say goodbye and give our virtual hugs to people and wish everybody well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.